Welcome back to the Darkest Hour podcast, the show that delivers a thorough but loving autopsy on some of the most intriguing and fascinating and sometimes divisive horror films from the past and present. And this is about as recent as we've gone in a while because we've finally worked our way through all of the Halloween movies And we are to the very last one before the 2018 remake, reboot, whatever you want to call it. It's Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. As we're in the home stretch, and this is the the final lap of Every Night is Halloween, the season of the Darkest Hour podcast that never seems to end. We're on our third uh, co-host at this point, and... I have a lot more gray hair, and um, we're practically at the next presidential election. But the good thing is it's uh, – no, I'm joking about that. Um, it is Halloween, uh, practically, which is kind of exciting and gives this episode a little extra thrill. Um, how are you guys doing tonight? Uh, Vikram Wheat, as always, the screenwriter extraordinaire, my friend. How are you? John, I'm lovely. I got a new job. Uh, so my, my days of being able to watch an entire two hour movie on my way home might finally be at an end. Cause I'm going to be working for a, uh, an esports production company, uh, that's just about 45 minutes from my house. Wow. Only two more weeks of the long slog. And you guys won't have to listen to me jabber about whatever ridiculous podcast I've been binging for, uh, the last three days. Thank that, God. That's uh, Rich Eckersley, our, our other co-host, who is uh, a grand poobah in the world of reality TV. Is that, is that a good intro? I don't know, Rich. How are you tonight, man? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm, I'm doing all right. I got to say, you, may, you really make me feel like the ultimate red shirt when my introduction <laughs> is, we're on our third co-host. <laughs> What's going to happen they're, to me, John? What's going to happen to me? Spontaneous combustion. Like- Exactly. They like drummers from Spinal Tap. (laughs) (laughs) The Darkest Hour has surprises for all of us, uh, (laughs) I'm sure, on this dark and winding road that is nearing a conclusion, at least for uh, the Halloween series. And uh, I have to say, guys, this has been the the two Rob Zombie films. What do you call it? A a duology, if it's not a trilogy? I don't know. The the two-part story uh, of this interpretation of Michael Myers and uh, Halloween I, I, it has whipsawed me back and forth, guys. Like, I, I really did not expect to have surprising and extreme reactions to this. But if everyone listened to our last show, uh, I basically said that I really, really liked the, the first Rob Zombie Halloween, uh, when I saw it in the theater. And then when I revisited it for our show, maybe it was just franchise fatigue with having seen all of these people 
you know, different filmmakers and writers take a stab. Oh, sorry for the pun guys. Take a stab at this franchise. And it, uh, it just felt like kind of a unfocused, unsuccessful, tonally all over the place kind of a effort that was ultimately very disappointing to me the second time. And I had seen this movie that we're talking about tonight, Halloween two, uh, as per the Rob zombie touch, uh, I'd seen that and didn't like it at all. Really. I mean, it didn't do much for me and we'll get into that a little bit more in a bit. And then I saw it again for this podcast and I just found it really like a breath of fresh air. I mean, finally we have like a, really distinct, different personal vision of this that takes the whole thing in a direction that we haven't seen a thousand times. And, you know, it's not a perfect movie, but I thought for the most part, it, it's one of the more interesting of the Halloween sequel reboots, remakes, whatever you want to call them. So, I mean, I guess that's a good segue into your first experience with this particular film. Uh, Vic, uh, had you seen it before? And tell us like, what you thought of it the first time. So I actually saw this with Rich uh, the first time that I watched it, and it was kind of the perfect way to see it, and it actually works out that this is how we're winding up the podcast because we did our, our annual now, I'm, I think about 10 years on, uh, Halloween tradition where we all get together for a weekend sometime around Halloween, and we pick a theme of movies. We try to pick around 10 of them. We spend the whole weekend cooking and drinking and experimenting sexually and watching <laughs> horror movies. And so we, we did uh, one of the first ones we did was for the whole Halloween franchise, which we started the first one on Friday night. And I think we all slept at Rich's place. By the time we got done with the first Rob zombie one, we all just walked out of Rich's apartment, walked to a movie theater while drinking uh, open container beverages in Burbank, California, and went and saw this in the movie theater, which is a weird headspace to be in, just generally. Like, I don't know if there's anything you could go see after watching nine straight Halloween movies where you wouldn't be a little loopy. And so I know, Rich, I know I came out of it pretty disappointed and and really just my my primary association going into it had something to do with white horses. I don't know. What What was your take on it? I've been through film school. I've spent my entire adult career working in the industry. And still, I felt like no one had ever explained producers quite as well as Vic did. Immediately after we saw this the first time, and Vic said, that's what producers are for, is to step in and say, Rob, we can't use the white horse. It's a bad idea. <laughs> but yeah, that is what a producer does. It's quality control. The feeling at the time was that quality control was not present. I yeah, I feel I remember feeling really disappointed and a little bit numb by the end of it. Uh, but I'm with John. That I, I do feel like I had a different reaction to the movie this time around. My wife, who I watched it with uh, the second time I watched it this time, had a very different opinion. She, in fact, hated it even more um, than the first time we saw it. Um, so it was interesting to see that play out. Oh, I'm sure that was a fun night in the Eckersley household. After that. <laughs> I was I was actively trying to defend it most of the evening, but I don't know. I don't want to I don't want to get ahead of myself. In short, I think we were all a little let down by it when we saw it in the theater. Was your couch comfy that night or, or did you really wish you hadn't <laughs> gone down that road? 
<laughs> last night, yeah, that that that's the hill that I'm going to die on. <laughs> Rob Zombie's Halloween Two is a masterpiece. <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm sure you had an impassioned 60 minute diatribe about it that, that didn't turn her around, but you can bring it to this show now. Well, I will say a little bit about how this movie uh, came to be and the amount of latitude that Rob Zombie had in making it after the first film was very the first zombie film. I mean. Uh, was very successful financially. I think the whatever Akkad is still alive. Ooh, sorry, that's not the sun in good taste. But the sun. Sorry, I just forget his first name. <laughs> Malek, I think. Okay, thank Malik? you. M- Malek Akkad. Yes, thank you, Vic. Uh, and sorry, uh, uh, Malek. Um, but the he gave a lot of cre- creative control back to Rob Zombie in the situation and said, you know, you don't have to obey any of the rules you did with the first one, like all of the dictates and mandates about, you know, what – how to represent Michael and, and, you know, and basically he said that zombie has said that there didn't have to be any John Carpenter Ness in this. And that kind of does explain that he was, I guess, just driving to the set one day. And this is what he said on the commentary and saw a white horse. And he's like, wow, that's like a really strange, surreal dreamlike image. And boy, did he work it in to the movie, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. all over the place in this It defines film. the movie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to everyone. Yeah, whether you love the movie, hate it, um, or are somewhere in between, it's it's sort of the, the thing that people talk about and remember. Well, John, it's funny because you said you were like, I, I didn't expect to have such a surprising, extreme reaction to this. And I feel like that might be the hallmark of Rob Zombie film is like it or hate it, he wants to get an extreme reaction out of you from it. Now, that said, I feel like just if I was if I was a, a producer giving notes, uh, I might say that explaining what your symbol symbolizes in a title <laughs> card at the beginning of the movie probably means you fucked up your symbolism. I don't want to judge because I'm with you guys. I, I did enjoy this more than I more than I remembered and more than I expected to. But I'll probably play devil's advocate a little bit here, too, because that that shit was annoying. Well, I will say that that uh, title card that you're referring to illuminates nothing for me <laughs> at all. Like, I, I don't think even Rob Zombie understands what it really means if it has a meaning. And I think that's one of sort of the interesting things that we'll talk about throughout this podcast is the degree of specificity of this vision that he has. And I would say that if, yeah, you can call it a vision because it's a creative impulse and there's a coherence to it and a cohesiveness, at least in the sense that the tone and the vibe and the ideas that, that we do have are throughout the whole thing, a consistency, but I don't think he, you know, could have a pedantic conversation with us about what that represents. I think it's, he's totally shooting from the hip. It's impulsive. It's something that it spoke to him, but he doesn't understand it. And he's simply presenting it to us to see, you know, to give us the opportunity to interpret it as we will. I think it's that type of artistic statement, not one where he's like, well, this represents the the struggle of the psyche and all of us and societal forces in the 70s, which were such a formative period for me. He's not going to have that conversation with you or me or his wife. That's true. I'm just saying I really wish that Bergman had put a title card up before (laughs) Wild Strawberries that said clocks 
uh, in dream imagery represent the impending death that we all face and must come to terms with. I feel like that I would have gotten more out of the film if he had just put that out there right up front. <laughs> all right, Mr. I Hater. I gotta say uh-huh. it's indicative of his mindset in terms of like you mentioned the DVD commentary, which I almost feel like warrants its own sidebar. <laughs> I I listened to about half the move about the first half of the movie with the DVD commentary and just didn't get a chance to finish it all. But his attitude towards this movie is so oddly cavalier, and just like literally, it sounds like he was making up the movie day by day. There's so many stories of, well, I was just driving in and I saw this thing or I thought of this thing or I was like, why don't we try this today? And like there are major scenes in the movie. It's very unusual. Like he does seem like he has a vision, but the feeling he gives in describing how the movie came together sounds almost like a kind of improv for him. Absolutely. Yeah. He comes from a musical background that has, you know, obviously with jazz and so many influences, uh, whether you're a rockabilly heavy metal guy or whatever he would describe himself as or or not that there's an improvisational element to music and there's an improvisational element to a lot of art forms including a lot of cinema a lot of it foreign but i don't think it's like necessarily a deal breaker i mean there's a lot of really interesting movies louis buñuel for example Uh, And filmmakers that it's not even enough to say they don't whack you over the head with their message. Um, They they would often admit, as he would, that they don't even really know, but that there's something in the collective unconscious or in their own unconscious that they that, that needed to come out. And that's what it is. And I'm fine with that. I mean, I think this movie is not particularly smoothly integrating these kind of elements into kind of more traditional genre elements. And thus that's part of why it kind of ends up feeling like it doesn't know what the hell it's doing in a bad way (laughs) instead of in a good way. But you know, that doesn't invalidate the whole effort in my eyes. Well, fucking a guys. I just got to say, we are like 10 minutes into this. We have already referenced Ingmar Bergman and Louis Buñuel. I'm going to bring this back to earth because I'm about to open a beer. What are you nice. guys drinking tonight? This is kind of a boring old standby for me, but uh, the Sculpin IPA. Oh, it's a classic. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And I'm going to drink it out of my Oktoberfest mug. Rich, what are you drinking? I am actually starting out with water this evening because I'm a professional and I've uh, I've learned my lessons. And as the third host, <laughs> sorry, as the third host, I've learned that I need to keep my wits about me because who knows what kind of tragedy could befall me. <laughs> you need to keep your head on a swivel, son. Absolutely. I'm going to stay sharp until like the second reel and then maybe I'll open something up. There you go. There you go. go. Yeah, I would be, frankly, sad if someone on this show did not consume alcohol in the course of it. So please, uh, Rich, as as tempting as this tradition might be to break for your own safety, you know, roll the dice, man. Get crazy with us. That's a good point. I'm getting ready to crack open a New Belgium Oak Spire, which is a bourbon barrel ale. Uh, Quite delicious. I'm a big fan. Hang on. I'm going to move the mic over next to it so we get the full effect here, guys. Hang on. That was nice. There we go. There you go. The magic of audio, folks. It's great. All right. Who needs that's, that's images? A, that's a powerful beer. I'm looking forward to seeing how Vic's opinion changes over the next 20 minutes. <laughs> oh, it's going to get weird, dude. It's going to get very, very weird. I love this movie, man. It's so good. 
uh, you can mostly tell how drunk I am by how belligerent I get towards John. <laughs> All of his latent <laughs> hostility comes to the surface. Yep. That's what I listen for. <laughs> I don't think you're the only one, Rich. That's why my wife likes the show. It should be retitled, retitled Vic Tells John What He Really Thinks of Him. <laughs> What we really think of this movie is uh, the purpose of the show, but what other people thought of it is sadly already known and should be noted at the outset that the movie was neither as popular with audiences at the box office or with critics, though the critics didn't exactly do cartwheels for the first one, um, as the original zombie remake. This movie was not received as well overall as the uh, its predecessor, there are a lot of theories with timing and fatigue, but I think just overall is probably a less marketable film. And certainly it's just as off-putting to critics. And I, I really think that I, I'm uniquely on board with the movie having just seen its predecessor. And while there was you know only a couple of years in between them, I think you really kind of have to see the two films as one story to get the full benefit of the character Arcs might be a strong word, but, you know, the way that these characters change in the course of these two films, I think that's one of the more interesting things. And I think that's easily overlooked if you just kind of wander into the movie and expect uh, to be in any way treated carefully by Rob Zombie, who, who, who definitely has created a film that feels like an assault. And it's not it's not pleasant. And but that's absolutely what he's going for. It was also very well received by the equestrian crowd, John. That's a, it's a, it's a niche market, but uh, very passionate about horror films, it turns out. <laughs> it was on the cover of Horse Spectator. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it is also worth noting that we all saw the director's cut, which was yes. <clears throat> substanti somewhat substantially different from the theatrical cut, which I also attribute to why I feel differently about the first version I saw. Oh, in I'm case so you, glad you brought that up. In case you felt the the theatrical cut was too sunny, if it was <laughs> if it just had too much uh, uh, upbeat content, and you really wanted something that felt more dour, that's what Zombie's given us. Ironically, that actually is more or less what he says about the theatrical cut: is that a lot of the scenes, especially with Laurie and Annie and Laurie and her therapist, were changed to a more palatable version where Laurie was a happier character who was getting along with everyone. I actually just watched a, a comparison. Um, the the same great guy on YouTube who does the kill count videos does a, a a cut a cut comparison, and I watched both of them. And it uh, of the the original Halloween remake, uh, the zombie version, and then this film. And both comparisons uh, are interesting because he has essentially disavowed, and I don't know how he had the power to do this but he's disavowed the theatrical cuts and they're really not the home entertainment versions at this point. Like they're hard to get a hold of the, the movie that you guys saw in the theater or that, you know, anyone would see when they saw these films upon their release. And they're, they're different in a, a lot of ways that aren't the usual sort of uh, director's cut, you know, more gore, more violence. Like they just got, they got the MPAA out of the way. The, the main changes are in the first movie, Loomis is even more sympathetic than he was in the, in the theatrical cut. Like you see more of the little uh, acts of compassion and empathy for, for Michael. And in this one, it's Lori is more fucked up. Like it's, she's way more damaged. She has way more conflict with 
Annie and obviously the endings are, are different, which we'll get to uh, in this film, but it's just kind of strange and unusual for the director's cut to just become the version of the film. And I think it's definitely uh, an improvement in this film uh, because it adds, um, it makes Laurie's journey so much darker and more poignant and tragic. And it helps solidify the fact that the first movie was about Michael and this movie is 100% about Laurie. It's true. And 20% more white horse. I'm kidding. There's, there's, there's no more white horse. I don't think, I don't think that was part of the difference, but <laughs> no, he left in every frame of that horse. I'll tell you. <laughs> Bob Weinstein, you have to kill me with a fucking knife. If you want to take out one frame of that horse. <laughs> yes. The Weinsteins lost that battle. Let's let's dig into it, guys. I want to uh, I want I want to I want to see how this plays as we go through it. So uh, of course we have to begin with that uh, infamous title card. Let's read that aloud and see what it uh, see what it appears to mean. Um, and I did kind of scoff at this, I have to say. White horse linked to instinct, purity, and the drive of the physical body to release powerful and emotional forces like rage with ensuing chaos and destruction. Now, I am a professional uh, proofreader, copy editor type person uh, by day, and the punctuation on this title card is terrible, by the way. So there's like the comma is in the wrong place, and but we won't get into that right now. And this is supposedly an excerpt from the subconscious psychosis of dreams. I, it sounds like a very clinical text. I, uh, I was remiss, unfortunately, and I did not investigate whether or not that's a real uh, book. I'm pretty damn sure it's not. <laughs> Well, uh, Vic, you kind of come from a mental health background in, in your family. Uh, what, what, what do you take? What's your take on this? Sounds like bullshit to me, John. <laughs> it doesn't really make a ton of sense. I don't see the connection between purity and rage and chaos. Those, those ideas seem sort of disconnected. If you need to put a title card up to explain your symbol, then you fucked up. I mean, I do yeah. like the idea. And this I did find like in a microsecond of research that white horses are connected with purity. Like that is a general thing. If you, if you kind of keep that in mind, there are some correlations between how Michael views his sister throughout the film and how he begins, how he at this point sees his mother. And I think that the pursuit of purity or the desire for purity is the thing, the one impulse that he has that does not seem to be connected to a murderous impulse. And so well, I, I think that's cool. I'll say this. If, if your uh, pursuit in life is purity, then the Haddonfield that Rob Zombie has created is going to drive you to acts of rage because <laughs> – there is very little purity in this film. I really felt like I needed to take a shower after watching it. Yeah, Haddonfield got even grungier in this one than the last time we saw it, right? It's really like, what are the demographics of this town? I, every person is just awful. And the few people, and we'll get to this, but one of the lessons I took from this movie is never stop to help someone. Like, if you're a security guard, if you're just a, a schmuck driving down the road, the worst thing you could do is get out and tell somebody that everything's going to be okay and you're going to take them to a hospital because you're about to get fucking murdered, buddy. 
Uh, Rich, do you have any thoughts on this uh, title card or this whole idea of the white horse um, as a as a symbol before we even see the symbol? Well, with just regards to the card itself, I guess the question I would ask you guys is, do you feel like the rest of the movie, whether you like the title card or not, do you feel like the rest of the movie is better or worse for having this defined for you up front? Like if you watched this and there was no explanation to the white horse, and then how would you feel about it? I honestly think I might feel about the same. Again, when you tell me Rob Zombie was driving into set one day and saw a white horse and said, <laughs> that's a cool image. I should put that in the movie. That's pretty much what I would think with or without the title card. Like I, that, that all sort of fits as a piece. The idea that a white horse represents purity, kind of self-evident. You know, so I don't think I need that. So I feel like they're they're sort of bending over backwards to associate it with rage so that it makes sense in the course of a Halloween movie. And that doesn't really work for me. But I do like I mean, there is that idea of purity in a lot of what we've talked about, about Michael and his reaction to sex and sexuality and how that seems to trigger him in this into these fits of violence, you know, that is some something interesting, something to expound upon. Makes sense that that would be something that he associates both with his mother and with his infant sister, that idea of sort of purity. Um, so there's, again, there's some stuff there. It's a mistake. Like, it's a mistake to put a title card at the beginning of the movie. You've already started off on the wrong foot. We do also have a scene. I think the first scene coming up um, will also give you an explanation for the white horse. But we can talk about that when we get there. Yes, good point. Look, it's definitely not a great value added and you're taking a big risk when you when you include something like this and I think a lot of films do have some kind of quotation or statement that you know acts as some kind of thematic or narrative preface and I don't think we, you know, we complain about it. Theoretically it could have worked. Does this add much? No, probably not. Um could I would I have been fine without it? Yeah, absolutely. The one thing that I get stuck on, though, that I do think is interesting is the psychosis of dreams concept, which I will say is a huge part of the film as well, because this movie is very much about dreams and about their effect on on the mental uh, health of the people having them and sort of it becomes a shared psychosis, right? in this dream, in the, in the dreams that these two siblings have. So I do like that it, it is kind of fraught with implication for the story that we end up watching. That part of it actually is the most kind of intriguing and relevant, but it really kind of is easy to not notice. So yeah, as Rich was talking about, we begin in the past here uh, with what I believe is an outtake from the previous film which is uh, Deborah visiting uh, young Michael in the sanitarium at Christmas time. And she brings him uh, in what is a new scene because they've recast Michael. Uh, she brings him a gift. Guys, what did you think first off about the recasting of, of Michael, young Michael Myers? Look, I guess it was inevitable because in two years, the kid, whatever age he was, he got a lot taller Dig um, from the first movie had a very, very distinctive look. And I think I'll just say, I think it is a loss that it's not the same kid. And I, I wish it was. And this kid is a little more pretty boy and doesn't have that sort of 
strangeness, uh, you know, just in his face um, that the, the other kid had the benefit of. So I, I think it's unfortunate to recast him. But again, like if the kid is, you know, much taller and visibly older, I could see why they felt forced to do it. Apparently, by the way, he was hired, he came on, he shot some stuff and they're like, oh no, this isn't going to work. But Vic, what did you think about the the new uh, young Michael? Mostly agree, John. Uh, that kid does have a really distinct face. It's kind of too bad that they didn't have sort of de-aging technology or I don't know, they couldn't drop the seat on the fucking chair or something. <laughs> like, you know, we put people on Apple boxes all the time to make them look taller. It did strike me like it pulled me out. I want to stress it's I'm not down on this movie like i mostly share a lot of you guys feelings i think maybe i'm not quite as enthusiastic about it as you are but when the first thing you do is the title card and then the next thing you do is cut to a different kid i'm out of the movie at this point it's an auspicious beginning so yeah inauspicious inauspicious shit (laughs) are we we recording this no this is just the run-through (laughs) <laughs> oh good all right leave all leave all this in but yes this far in i was kind of going what the fuck is this uh both the first time and the second time that's fair uh rich what did you think about the recasting or the kids performance or you know whatever in general you, you your thoughts on this this new guy first of all i like the idea that there's like a six hour rehearsal for this podcast that yields <laughs> these three hours of gold that we'll end up with <laughs> It's unfortunate that it was a different kid. Yes, it distracted me. It's always weird when someone gets recast, especially someone as distinctive as Mm -hmm. that kid whose name I can't pronounce, um, who was in the first one, and who I thought did a great job in the first movie. Yes. Um, This kid never makes much of an impression. But, you know, yeah, what are you going to do? Kids get old. Fucking kids. I I get it. It's Yeah, it's just unfortunate. His name, by the way, just for the sake of giving him a shout-out because he was good, Dig Ferch. So the main I, takeaway of this scene, though, and I would like to know if you guys even picked up on this. I, I hope you did, but I didn't get it until the second time I watched this movie, and I wouldn't blame you if you didn't watch it twice. But uh, the kid describes a dream that the horse reminds him of, which he has already had, which is the dream that, spoiler alert, sorry guys, um, <laughs> uh, that Lori has at the very end of the movie when... Uh, she's presumed to be dead at that point. It's the exact dream that Michael describes to Deborah here is what Laurie experiences at the end of this movie. I did pick up on that when we got to the, we get to the end of the movie. It's because I'm smarter than both of you. Just, <laughs> just so you know, you know, even, even driving um, his car, watching it on a phone, trying to, you know, avoid the bumper in front of him. Vic picked up on that. <laughs> I was not trying to avoid buffers, and in fact, I was involved in several uh, accidents from which I fled. Was it a, was there a cow involved in any of these? <laughs> cow, cow! <laughs> that made me laugh. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, yes, there there was there were several cows. There is something I like about starting the movie off at Christmas, mm-hmm. just like tonally speaking, it, for obvious reasons. Um, it's sort of a an, an immediate like break from where this movie always starts, which is days before Halloween. So that was kind of refreshing. And, um, and I was, you know, I was happy to see Sherry Moon Zombie again, although I have to say her general demeanor in this movie is completely different than the first movie, but I guess there's sort of an explanation for that. You could argue it's a different character, but yeah, we'll get, we'll get into that. But this is the Sherry Moon Zombie that we saw 
in the previous film. And you're right. It is a really strong choice to, to have a, a, a moment of warmth between these two characters. And this is about as human probably as Michael ever was in captivity. And I think that is kind of the point of it is to show that it was important for him as well. And this kind of is the idea of wanting to go home, which was in the first movie too. I mean, he was, while he was really not adjusting well to being incarcerated, it was his desire to be free was a big part of it, but he did want to go home specifically. And that it's clear that in his fractured psyche throughout this film, the idea of recreating home or everyone being home again is his motivator. And I think that it, it always uh, flags a scene, you know, a flashback in this context, you're like, okay, so we're seeing something from a period of the story that we've already been through, but we're seeing a different moment because it's going to inform what follows in this narrative and i think this scene absolutely works from that standpoint it's also the warmest moment in the whole movie everybody else is just going to be awful from now on (laughs) yeah and and for michael myers to be involved in this and like giggling as his mom tickles him is is a strong humanizing thing and i would argue that this film humanizes Michael Myers more than any of them in in a very literal sense in that we see his face a lot more. But I think that's one of the, any talks and, and and it's even as an adult, this is one of the, the bold choices that zombie makes in this film. They throw the title card up and we cut to a very eerie and I think effective little sequence of Lori walking like Carrie. I, I kept being reminded of Carrie um, as she's sort of wandering, covered in blood, uh, alone on these empty, desolate streets, trying to get home. She's broken and wandering on this, you know, cold, rainy night. She doesn't even know her parents are dead yet, but she's already kind of the living dead here when uh, Sheriff Brackett rolls up in his police car, takes her to the hospital, peels this, this gun out of her hand that she just used to, to shoot Michael. We talked a lot when we talked about the David Gordon Green reboot about how kind of disingenuous Lori's trauma seemed uh, that she was still 40 years later, you know, just guzzling bottles of liquor from a mini bar in her car uh, and 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 so sort of damaged and everything else. You know, maybe H2O did it better. But here, like this is a genuine depiction of trauma. Looking at her like this and then seeing what happens to her throughout the rest of the film as a result of where she starts. I mean, that's this is where she starts. This is who she is at zero and where she's in, you know, where she's going to be one year, two years, depending on which cut you watch. I want to talk about that, too. This feels genuine. And those things feel genuine as a result of this. So I really like this as a setup for where we're going to find her and where she's, you know, where she's going to be at when the when the the story sort of picks up properly i buy it i think that's important oh yeah i mean one of my favorite things about this movie is that and i was the one generally grousing the most i think in in previous films and the one that comes after this um about the idea the treatment of laurie strode's ptsd in whatever jamie lee curtis version you're watching and i think this is my favorite 
absolutely. This feels like the most psychologically true and raw and authentic and sad version of that, of any of them. And, you know, you could say there's a big advantage in having it be so fresh and she's so young. But, I mean, I want to give credit both to Zombie and to Taylor Scott uh, Compton here. For Scott Taylor. Scout Taylor Compton. Thank you. Inauspicious, John. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to give her so much credit, I'm going to mangle her name. That's how blown away I was by her performance. No, no. She's fantastic in this movie. And I think that this is kind of the Rob Zombie fuck you to previous movies that really lands. Because it really is devastating and packs a punch. And it's also believable, as you said, with with timing and everything. I'm like, yeah, anyone would be, even before you get into the whole tie-in of who she's related to and what's going on there, and is it genetic or is it supernatural or all of that, like just kind of what she is is going through here, it rings true for me, and it's, it's chilling. Aesthetically, I feel like uh, Rob Zombie's filmmaking was elevated a little bit. And I don't know if that was what exactly the influence was there, but I mean, his movies are always gritty, but this scene is the first indication I feel like of how like tactile the filmmaking is going to be. Like it feels cold and chilly and like the actual physical state of the character feels much more real. Like the whole movie feels like a very uncomfortable sort of shivering environment to be in. And I feel like he carries that throughout the whole movie. This reminded me of why I liked Rob Zombie as a filmmaker. Like watching this again reminded me of everything he did well in The Devil's Rejects. And I think that even just taken in it by itself, I love the look and texture of this movie. It's shot on 16, by the way which is a really bold. I just noticed like along the way, I was like, wow, it's a really grainy frame a lot of the time. And then I just saw today that he actually shot the movie on 16. And I think it totally helps with creating that, that very willfully designed ambiance that you're talking about. I, I absolutely love the world of this movie. And like, just in kind of a general overall statement, I think this is like a movie of our time. Ah, 10 o'clock, everybody. <laughs> As I'm about to say something really profound. <laughs> Come and get it, kitties. The dinner bell has rung. This was the perfect ending for our deep dive into the franchise because leave it to a music guy to just deliver a great cover. Something that brings a modern element and a really uh personal specific and unique style to something that someone else created and the result is something that is of our times more than the original even if it is a decade old now and but also kind of keeps a lot of the elements reminds you what you love about the source material and still gives you a lot of the same thrill and charge of the source material. Like, I think that say what you want about this movie. It is a fantastic Halloween cover and something that becomes its own thing. And that's what I wanted to end this, this part of our show. 
And that's why I love it. And I think that a lot of it does just have to do with the fact that this guy nailed it from a filmmaking standpoint. We're going to talk about that throughout the whole thing. Rich, you used the word tactile a lot just in talking about the style of the film. And we're getting ready to smash cut to her in the hospital and a lot of that stuff, which was really uh, horrifying. I was watching this on my lunch break today with my headphones in. And I can tell you that the sounds of the surgery uh, through earbuds while eating pizza is horrifying. I mean, <laughs> really, really upsetting. Never mind, like, we haven't got to the dog scene yet because Jesus Christ. But fortunately, I was done with my lunch by then. But no, I tactile is absolutely the right word. Like, it's oral, physical, the look of it, the feel of it. I mean, it's... Yeah, grimy. It's very unsettling. You mentioned sound yeah. effects. Later, there are some great ones. Yeah, as you as you talk about getting into the hospital, the, the gore in this movie in general, like he really turned the dial up from the first movie, which I thought was, other than a couple of scenes, was felt somewhat restrained or surprisingly restrained, I guess, for him. And here, I feel like he goes all out on several of the kills. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no holds barred here. And it, but I think that the sound effects definitely amplify some of those effects and, and make some of the scenes that aren't visually all that gory feel as sort of icky and unsettling and shocking as the ones that are more over the top visually. And, but that, but it's not really over the top. Like, that's the other thing uh, that I guess I should say is that he always says he wants it to be more real and gritty. And in the first movie, because his dialogue is so overblown, he actually, he, he often fails in that and it still feels over the top. Well, this movie, yeah, there's some, you know, classic Rob Zombie, quote unquote, classic um, dialogue, but for the most part, it doesn't really undermine the film. And this one really, I think he, he got there. Like it does feel real. It does feel gritty and, grounded and down to earth and authentic and that that makes everything a, a lot more disturbing and you were talking about her being worked on by the doctors that that scene is awful to watch i mean you're seeing them peel off like the the detached fingernail on her finger and her finger is pointing Ugh. the wrong way and they're cutting her clothes off and it's you're seeing all of these wounds that will need to be stitched up and you really get the the physical price that a, a, a heroine in one of these horror movies would inevitably pay. I mean, here she walked out on her own power and this is, but it's realistic. Like, yeah, these are, this is what you have to do with the kind of injuries that she has suffered. And I absolutely love that. And I would say guys that I can't think of a single horror movie that has ever captured that in a more believable manner. This is where the movie starts to take off, right? Like oh, I said, yeah. I'm, the title card and then the the even the opening scene with Sherry Moon Zombie, yes, humanizing, yes, white horses, but I'm still I'm kind of like, all right, I'm I'm not into it. Once we get here, I'm into it. And the juxtaposition of the surgery with the with the doctor's dialogue about it yes. was really interesting. And what especially what one of the doctors said was, Oh, she's gonna need plastic after this, but that's the least of her worries. Yeah. And it was like, okay, so she's horrifically maimed, but first we have to save her life. I worked for a season on a reality show called Dr. 90210. I have watched multiple plastic surgeries 
literally like a security camera in the room, just watching the doctors do nose jobs and, and, and boob jobs. I once saw a female to male uh, sexual transition surgery. This was more horrifying than all of that. Like it was, even though this was fake and sort of fictionalized, like it was, it was really realistic and really brutal. The guy speaking in the scene is a real doctor that they, he was their consultant, you know, their authenticity consultant. And then he somehow, this is according to the, you know, Rob Zombie commentary, he worked his way into an on-camera role. But interestingly enough, and this is another kind of statement on sometimes what Rob Zombie does fails completely. And sometimes it just kind of works. Well, we were talking last time about sort of his stunt casting. Well, this movie is absolutely loaded with actors who have so many stories and have told so many stories and have been a part of so many stories that we we love. Well, the the woman doctor in this is the star of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Shut up. Stretch is the doctor in this scene. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Caroline Williams. They don't beat you over the head with it. Like, it's not, hey, look at her, remember? Like, nobody would ever know. But it's kind of cool. And again, it doesn't distract you. It just, it's, it's just kind of a way to pay homage to another uh, great film in the history of uh, slasher movies. This is also a great kickoff to the entire, I know it's not the true beginning of the hospital sequence um, that is to follow, but it's a great indicator that the next like 20 minutes, if you like horror are just going to be fun to watch. Like, I feel like the energy of entering that hospital is if you're into that, like you're going to have a great time for the next few minutes. That's very true. And then they, they do cut back to the original crime scene and you're sort of intercutting. I love in general, the intercutting in this film. I think he does a great job of taking two different things and, and creating some interesting effects by intercutting them. But here we're mm-hmm. seeing uh, Michael's body being loaded up and uh, taken away. And I think this does kind of bring the first real question to the table of the film that I am wrestling with and I don't have it figured out and I don't have a satisfactory answer. I'd like to see how you guys feel about this. But the coroner says that, the cause of death in Michael's case is obvious gunshot wound to the head. Right. So I can assume that they checked his vitals and he is dead. Like there is no pulse. There is no brain activity. His heart is not beating. There's no effort made here to kind of throw any doubt on that. And I, what I find odd, like you and I, uh, the three of us would not, you know, find that odd in a, um, a Michael movie, Michael Myers movie or a Jason movie or whatever generally, but because this movie is so realistic and grounded in reality. And I think that to this day, Rob Zombie would say that he doesn't see anything supernatural in this. I think we can talk as we go. If like, it's more interesting to bring that interpretation in whether or not the filmmaker had a clear opinion of it or whether we should throw his opinion out. I don't know, but I'm just saying the dude is dead. So what logical explanation in Rob Zombie's eyes in a, in a realistic version of this story, how do we cross this bridge guys? Like assuming a degree of competence by the medical staff, Michael Myers is dead. He explained it in the commentary. I actually thought it was one of my favorite parts of it where he says like when Michael, you know, spoiler alert, Michael's going to come back to life uh, (laughs) shortly. 
he was like, you know, a lot of people ask, like, what's the, like, how could he be, like, still alive? And I'm like, you know what? Like, you just got to let it go, guys. Just, like, let it go. I don't know. She was a bad shot. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he he did say in the commentary, okay, I'm fine with that because I listened to it, too, that she grazed him. And, you know, she thought, like, he's wearing a mask. Look, it's possible that she thought she shot him like center mass of the skull, but it actually, you know, just nicked his head. That doesn't help me. Cause I just explained to you like that the medical staff signed off on him being dead. That's the real problem. And I know Rob zombie doesn't want to deal with it. And he just was kind of like, you know, from his point of view, uh, again, back to the sort of the business of filmmaking, I guess that like, well, you know, Michael Myers has to come back and, you know, the, how are we going to come up with some kind of believable explanation for that? It's, it's just, you know, it's movies guys. Nobody's really going to think about it. Well, that's not good enough for us on this podcast, right? Uh, oh, it's good enough for me. <laughs> well, you know what? I will say this because one of the things that I find very interesting about this movie is once you start to introduce this idea of the shared hallucinations the notion that Michael had a dream as a child that his infant sister then uh, recreated as an adult with no way of knowing it. The whole scene where where maybe it's like a mental thing, but that she seems to feel like she's being held down by this child version of Michael that she can't see. There's a supernatural element to this film that it uh, is maybe stronger than anything outside of the the sort of Celtic cult version of this that he really introduces and just says here it is i'm trying to remember there was an exact quote i heard from john carpenter who was like look michael myers is is not just a person like there's Mm -hmm. something else to him i'm not going to tell you what uh and i think that that's sort of the explanation for this is he's like look there's something else going on here i'm not going to give you all the answers i'm gonna i'm just gonna Again, it's like there's a white horse here. Here's a white horse. I'm not going to – well, there's a title card for the white horse. But there's – you know, he's he's introducing a lot of elements, and I think some of them are very supernatural in certainly in what they imply. And so there's something implied, sort of supernatural implied by Michael's resurrection. That's mm. okay. Ultimately, I find the film more satisfying if there's no supernatural element in play. And I don't know that there's any – direct assertion that anything supernatural is happening here. I do see why that can be your interpretation, but I think that everything in it could also just be written off as, you know, a manifestation of his like inner thoughts and his psychosis. So, but but Lori saw the white horse, dude. Why did Lori see a white horse? Well, it's because they have like a shared psychology. Is that more believable than anything else? I'm struggling with the idea that the filmmaker who he not only did that, he write it, he, he directed it. So, I mean, this is, he has ownership of this 100%. And produced it. Yeah. Th- this guy is 100% involved on a granular level with this film. And I know, you know, just based on what, again, director's commentary, everything else, like this guy has made this movie with the assumption that it is that is not supernatural. And yet it is completely freighted with stuff that does not make sense. Like there is not a real world uh, psychological explanation 
for what Lori and Michael share in terms of the specificity. They are having the exact same hallucinations at the exact same time. I don't know how you just say, uh, you know, horror movies, blah, blah, blah. I mean, let alone like, well, no, that's just all psychological. It's cerebral. It's like uh, psychosis. There is absolutely no explanation for that in, in any kind of uh, real world interpretation. It just doesn't work. And as we go, I think that'll be really, really obvious. So I'm struggling with, I will like this movie more. And I think it works so much better if you if you do kind of maybe we don't fully understand it and maybe it's not fully explained that's totally fine but if you do read it from a supernatural perspective that's when it gets really fucking cool and really interesting and all of this craziness including the horse and including mom uh showing up in her ghostly visage all that works but it doesn't work if you need it to fit into any kind of real world believable that's just psychosis and yet that is inarguably the position of the filmmaker so i'm stumped by it i'm flummoxed well and especially because this is uh, i think as we've talked about this is a film that demands to be taken seriously in a way that the curse of michael myers does not Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so yeah like i john i agree with you and i think you I, I don't think there's a way to watch this without embracing the supernatural aspect of it. Something that came into my head, and I've always wondered why people didn't address this, is it seems to me that the the answer, if I was going to try and apply some kind of rules or logic to this, is that Michael can't die until he kills Lori or until he kills his whole family. It's like Highlander. There's There's absolutely nothing to suggest that in mm-hmm. this except the fact that Michael can't seem to die. But if you were looking for an explanation, if you were looking to put some kind of structure around the rules that we seem to have to play by in a Halloween movie, that one seems pretty obvious to me. Now, again, doesn't really matter, but I do think if you're going to watch this movie and take it seriously, you have to embrace something out of the ordinary. This is not just a guy with a knife. There is something else going on here in terms of his connection to Lori, the connections to their family, and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. It's starting to sound like a lot of religious claptrap to me. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, like, you're right, though. Like, because if it's going for ultra-realism in so many details, like, we do need a little bit of, whether it's a mythology or something, or at least a coy statement by the filmmaker to say, make of it what you will. And the movie just doesn't give us, and the filmmaker doesn't give us any of the things that would really allow us to just say, well, it's whatever you think it is or or something like that, you know, that I think would kind of be the best way to paper over stuff that, look, we're all writers to, you know, some degree or another. Nothing is worse when you're trying to tell a story and you're like, oh my God, how am I going to sell this? And there's a lot of sleight of hand and a lot of tricks in in doing that. And I just wish that that he had leaned into one of them so we would all be happy with however we wanted to see this movie. Rich is happy with it to, you know, a degree on this level that I am not. But and yet, like, I I wouldn't need much to be satisfied, but he he's just not giving it to me either during the movie or after the movie. <laughs> There's a conclusion that I arrived at 
while watching Donnie Darko, which was, I don't really understand Donnie Darko. I don't really understand exactly everything that happens in that movie, but I've got a good feeling that Richard Kelly does. And I, when I watch this, and especially when you, when you tell me that that's what Rob Zombie says in the commentary, but when I watch this, I don't get the feeling that the filmmaker has the explanation in his head. Like, it's okay for you to not give me the explanation on the title card. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need it. I don't need it spelled out for me. I like puzzling through it. I like things that feel mysterious. I think that's part of the attraction of horror films in general is that they don't have a set of rules to play by that, you know, fucking 21 grams and, and traffic do. You have you have a way to explore these kind of mysterious ideas. It can be a feeling. It can be something that's a little intangible. But I want to know that the guy pulling the strings has an idea about what's going on. A lot of this works. So again, this is not this has a lot of those intangibles and a lot of those things that like you want to puzzle out. So why it's such a great movie for a podcast like this. But boy, I want to know that somewhere somebody has an answer that I'm puzzling toward. And I don't think Rob Zombie does. What's interesting is he's not ashamed of that. Like uh, he's totally upfront about that. (laughs) He's aiming more for feel and it's sort of by dumb luck that anything works. Yeah. Well, he is like back to the sort of jazz analogy. Like, I think that that that's okay. And, and it's funny that he's a completely instinctive filmmaker and it's okay that he could create something that, you know, you or I or someone else 50 years from now could say, this is actually the most interesting of the Halloween films on a couple of levels, and I'll tell you why. And it has nothing to do with the intentions of the creator. I mean, I think we all generally agree as we in film studies and, and a lot of different, you know, disciplines of art that on some level, the intentions of the, of the artist do not matter. It is what what does the text, whatever that might be, present to the audience. And so I should really be at peace with that, that, you know, it's fine if my interpretations of this movie end up being more interesting to me than what the filmmaker intended. That that happens all the time and there's nothing wrong with it. Trust the tale, not the teller. Right, right. And maybe even you could explain that as like, you know, the person had something to say, had a tale to tell, and they didn't, they don't have to fully understand it, but it was worth putting out into the world. And, and, you know, I think that that also is cool. And and just something about uh, humanity and our instinct to tell stories that end up being greater than the people who told them. Speaking of our instinct to tell stories, can we talk just a little bit about the two ambulance drivers that, that are like, again, only in a Rob Zombie movie. And again, this is when you just start to get that like icky feeling. We talk so much about the breakfast scene in the first movie. Who's the actor that plays the stepfather? William um, Forsyth. Forsyth. Uh, yeah, that he's just, you know, it's all about him ogling the, the daughter and the, the strippers and all this kind of stuff. So, of course, when it's two ambulance drivers driving Michael Myers away, what are they talking about? But necrophilia. The difference between jelly and jam? Uh, I mean, the, uh, only in a <laughs> only in a Rob Zombie movie, only in a Rob Zombie movie, do you get that kind of dialogue? You know, because of course, then when Michael Myers wakes up, I mean, after the fabulous cow scene, Michael Myers wakes up, and you're like, well, at least he's going to kill this guy. Rob Zombie, as a writer, I think he really believes 
like I don't know where he got this, what he watched or read as a as a child or you know as a teenager growing up, what his influences were. But I think he really believes that the definition of good dialogue is that it's really raunchy, really quote unquote outrageous and shocking on some level, and that characters should always have this like real negativity to what they're saying they should be in conflict or they should be saying something horrible they should be exposing what horrible people they are or like i just really think that he writes this stuff and he thinks yeah that's good that's not boring that's not lame that's not that doesn't just lie there that's what i would want to see like of course right i mean because that's that's the the creative mandate the impulse and I think the rest of us just kind of like ugh, roll our eyes and shake our heads. But like clearly he is committed that what makes two characters talking to each other interesting is that they're being really uh, offensive and they're revealing the, their, the worst aspects of their psychology. And that is a movie scene. <laughs> I will say, just just in case anyone listening doesn't remember, I don't think we said that they're they're talking about having sex with the corpse of um, Linda, of Linda mm-hmm. from the first movie, right? As soon as they started talking, I was like, oh god, it's like the rape scene from the first movie. Yeah. With the notable difference, and it, it kind of undoes this, but for a moment, I was on board with it because the one guy brings up the idea of wanting to have sex with the corpse. And the other guy is like, what the hell are you talking about? I kind of like the idea that, that someone in the Rob Zombie movie is like, is acknowledging what the discussion is. But then that guy ends up go, you know, buckling to it anyway. And it's kind of ruined. <laughs> yeah. He, he's the one that yeah. does the jelly and jam thing. Right. Doesn't he? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which we will not repeat because mm-hmm. I can't, I just can't listen to that phrase come out of my mouth. In the tradition of like everybody, the broken clock is is right twice a day. Like all of that stuff is just just barely toned down enough that it doesn't really submarine the movie quite the same way that it did the last time around. In my opinion, I can see these guys being creepy, you know. And and you did as you mentioned, Rich. Like for a minute, the dynamic is different, and it's just it's flat out better than that. Like absurd sequence where they're both just like destroying the kitchen in their fight in the first movie, which is, you know, it was just absurd. But I will say all is forgiven when the scene is punctuated with the cow. Well, full disclosure, everybody, we just had a little bathroom break and popped open a new round of drinks. Uh, those of us uh, drinking out of bottles, uh, I popped a Kua Bay India pale ale. Liquid aloha, folks. And uh, Rich, as you broke the seal on the booze, what did you end up pouring? A Kua Bay? I've never heard of that. Oh, it's like the Sounds same. Exotic. It's uh, it's Kona Brewery, Brewing Company. Like the uh, onboard okay. folks. I opened up a Swami's IPA. I couldn't I couldn't stay straight anymore. <laughs> Is that the, <laughs> the the Pizza Port people? or that's, uh, that's Pizza Port, yeah. Nice, nice. As the only one staying true to the uh, the the traditions of the podcast, that's my latitude thirty three honey hips. I think it's a regular on this podcast. I've been Off calling you honey hips for years. I just didn't know you you knew about it. Okay. Uh, I knew, John. I always knew. <laughs> So uh, back to these coroner guys uh, hitting the cow. It does come off as ridiculous to me. Michael has escaped in this situation so many times. 
And this time it's the hand of God or whatever that puts a cow in the road. And um, it, it seemed like one of the more ridiculous and unlikely of the scenarios that filmmakers have concocted to uh, give Michael a boost out of the back of a van before. Uh, what were your guys' thoughts on? I mean, I guess points for originality, right? Don Haddonfield, Illinois, uh, especially as Rob Zombie has conceived, it seems like a cow town. So I mm-hmm. thought it. Yeah, I actually, I didn't, I really didn't have a problem with it. It's such a big gag that the fact that it's, um, the fact that it's dumb sort of just goes right past you. It, it, it <laughs> almost goes past the point of absurdity to where you just accept it. Well, what did your wife it's, say it's, about it's, it? <laughs> It's like it's like the entirety of the Trump presidency. Sorry, I know we're not supposed to get political, but yeah, it's like a big gag that's so big that you're just like, oh, this is actually happening. What a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Rob Zombie was like making they live here and he didn't even know it. Like, it's just a timeless political (laughs) commentary. (laughs) I will say that, like, the visceralness of the of the aftermath is fantastic. I mean, the, the driver is all kinds of fucked up and the, and the other guy is like really weirdly idiosyncratic in his reaction. And yet, you know, I kind of buy it that he's, um, he's in a great deal of pain and, uh, yeah, I like it. Uh, Michael comes out the back, like in a very explosive, threatening, um, powerful way that it takes a bit. And he just kind of methodically picks up a piece of glass from the windshield, comes back around to the window and, saws the survivor's head off and then he sees his uh m- his mother for the first time in the horse and so uh, one of the ideas i wanted to float to kind of make this work and and again this is all in the eye of the beholder but what if this if let's call it a near death experience that michael has what if that crossing over partially to the other side explains why he has sudden access to this otherworldly perception that like admittedly we got to retcon the fact that Michael wasn't seeing this stuff in the last movie. Right. So all of a sudden he's seeing his mother and the horse. Maybe it has to do with either he's gone over the bridge between life and death or come close and then gone back or whatever. Is it, does it help at all that maybe the trigger to this, this taking it to the next level where he's seeing his mother all the time is because he's quote unquote died. That crossed my mind, John, but that doesn't explain why Lori starts to see it. I know. So it doesn't, I don't think it, I don't think it holds a ton of water, but it does seem like a surrealist explanation. Well, you could say that now that Michael has become a creature of with supernatural access, that then that is infecting Lori because she wasn't having any of that through the last 15 years. She begins having that after, I mean, it's been two years in the director's cut. Um, It's been two years since he escapes here, but that by him becoming uh, this way, whatever this is, and, and, uh, and, and still fixated on her, that that is what could create the link that because yes, they're siblings and that's why he has access to her, but kind of hearkening back to the Jamie Lloyd films that there will be some kind of supernatural connection or a consciousness connection between them. 
And now that he has his otherworldly, this is the shit that comes down the other otherworldly turnpike into her brain. I also want to throw out there that if you do want to go this route, it's also arguable that Laurie did have a near-death experience at the mm. same exact time. But I don't want to go that route. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rich, I don't know how you're going to view this movie then. <laughs> Because a lot of stuff is going to seem pretty ridiculous um, then. I mean, I, I mean, sure, the, the movie's ridiculous. I guess the, the main reason why I wouldn't buy that, and maybe there's a small quibble, is that if he's being given, what did you call it, supernatural access, Yeah. are you implying that he's actually talking to his mother from beyond the grave? Well, I mean, that, again, is one of the interesting questions that we will try to answer in the course of talking about the movie like is it her or is it a different character is it i mean it... she feels like a very different character mm -hmm. like in the first movie she was all warmth and trying her best and just wanted michael to be happy and be a normal little boy and here she's talking about painting a trail of blood that takes you back to the you know bringing the family whole again it doesn't exactly seem like those two characters are aligned with each other. It definitely makes more sense if you think that the visions of her are, you know, just him like having these visualizations that are his own deranged thoughts. Guys, we really don't have time for these kind of small quibbles on this podcast. That's, not, <laughs> that's, that's not really what we're about. Actually, Vic, I really want to know what you think about in all seriousness. Like, let me throw this out there then. What if it is, absolutely not her but it, there's still a supernatural element and this kind of ties back to the notion that whether it's a curse that we'll never fully understand whatever the darkness is that he has accessed that it is supernatural but it is simply taking the form of her because that well, is what motivates him that seems more intriguing yeah it doesn't i mean i, I agree with rich this does not seem connected to the character that we knew in the first film. This seems more like an embodiment of his subconscious, which is why it doesn't work under that sort of sort of umbrella that Laurie begins to see the same things. So, yeah, I mean, that would be the explanation. If I was as a writer, if I was going to if I was going to put some kind of rules or logic to it, I would say that there is some kind of supernatural element. I mean, yes, curse, whatever that is infected within this family. And so both Michael and Lori have some kind of subconscious access to it that is triggered by their mutual near-death experiences. None of that is fleshed out in this, but there is enough intelligence and thought behind the film that we have in front of us that you can say, look, there are ways to tie this together in a way that makes sense. I don't think Zombie's really interested in that. I don't think he's interested in telling a coherent story in terms of these elements. No. It's more about what's the reaction that he can get out of us, uh, what's our what's our reaction to the visuals and the things that, things that he's able to draw from that. And that's really what he gets from this is these wonderful visual components. And again, it is this externalization, uh, both of Michael's subconscious in the form of his mother, but also the child Michael, who does a lot more talking because we're dealing with a character who can't speak. I think he wants us to get some of 
what's going on inside of Michael. And so he lets this uh, hallucinatory child version of him speak. And that gives us some idea about him as well. The one comparison that, that occurred to me when I was watching this was the grudge where we have a mother and son sort of spectral figures that are, especially in, in the grudge, it's particularly the son who is a, a precursor to violence. He's a bad omen basically. And so I like the idea that these characters are just omens or something. Uh, and, and yes, there's sort of an externalization of his subconscious and why is Lori tapping into that same thing that suggests this kind of supernatural element. But it, I do get to a point where I'm just willing to sort of buy it and not ask that many questions, which I think is what zombie was what he wants. I agree with you. But I mean, I think the problem where it breaks down, like the irrevocable choice was made to link their consciousnesses. And I think it's a big choice that you have to be accountable for as a filmmaker or as, as a storyteller to have Lori have the degree of shared consciousness and seeing and see and experience things that she, there is absolutely no psychological explanation for that. It is 100% inherently, it must be supernatural. And I think once you do that, then you have to commit to it. And I would have been 100% fine with all of this if it was just from his perception. And I would have been like, yeah, okay, now we're getting a, win a window into an insight into Michael's perception. I'd be fine with that. But once you do this whole psychic link type of thing, I think that you need to think bigger, whether it's as a filmmaker or as an audience. And I just like, I'm, I'm wrestling with that. And I, I would like to think that at least there, there's some way to view it that ties into the whole spirit of these films. Like a lot of these films have, there's always been a supernatural component and whether or not it's very, uh, conscious on this filmmaker's part, if there's a way to appreciate the movie more that incorporates that, like I'm, I'm attracted to, to, to figuring it out, but yeah, you're right. They're not, he's not making it easy for us. So let's, let's go into this extended hospital sequence, which one of the things that I really like about it is that it, it does like, it's the opposite of the last movie where we cram the entire Halloween one, the Jamie Lee Curtis, John Carpenter original, into the last hour of that movie. Well, now we're cramming the entire Halloween two from the original franchise into, I don't know, you know, 15 minutes or something here. But I think it works so much better the way this movie does it. I would argue that this is as scary or more scary as that original 1981 sequel but then the rest of the movie gets to breathe as opposed to doing it the opposite way where the the rush is is at the end of the film which just does not work i find this sequence to be enormously effective oh yeah like i even remember that from the from watching it in the movie theater the first time but watching it this time like i was fucking riveted like i and again in my lunchroom, like watching it on my phone, trying to keep the president of the company from noticing that we're watching this gory fucking horror movie on my phone. <laughs> I really can't turn away from it. There's a version of this movie where that just goes on for like a tight 80 minutes and I'm on board. There's a way to tell this story more akin to Halloween two, but with zombie stylings, 
with the co- the confines of the hospital, introduce one or two more characters. But again, that it was that I got this this idea of a very lean and mean version of this that is not about white horses and psychic connections and her finding out that she's a sister and everything else. And was just about this chick trapped in a hospital with this fucking psycho who's murdering everybody. I don't know quite how to make that, that play in terms of the story, but I was like, I would, I would love that movie. I would love to see that movie as much as I like this sequence. It is ostensibly a, a, a faint. It's a trick. This is, a tease to the people who know Halloween two, like you said, you're condensing Halloween two into this thing. And the idea that you're going to blow 15 minutes of your movie on a fucking dream sequence. I mean, it's not boxing Helena, but it takes the steam out of it a little bit when she wakes up and you're like, Oh shit. Oh no, none of this, none of this actually happened. Poor buddy. The, uh, the parking lot attendant. (laughs) By the way, did you, you know, see Buddy? I'm sure you didn't because uh, you didn't watch the commentary. But her bear is named Buddy, who figures more in the I theatrical cut, which yeah. I actually love. Like that is the type of little detail that makes that helps to sell what you're saying. Which yeah, it is. My first thought is I really hate ultra realistic detailed dreams that that you know are trying to trick us, and and then you're kind of like well. That's actually not like a real dream would not have all of those details, but it helps to sell it. That there's a piece of reality that fits into the mosaic of her subconscious as, as dreams usually do that the security guard, her security blanket in real life is a bear. They're both named buddy. You know, that's the kind of thing that helps mm-hmm. me with stuff, something like this, but nobody would Agreed. ever know that. <laughs> so I kept looking at, and I didn't do a ton of homework on this, but there's a musical performance on the TV when she wakes up. Oh, yeah. Uh, this sort of haunting music that that lingers through. And it's also playing in the the sort of security shed or whatever that she's in in the parking lot. Uh, and I thought, who the fuck is this guy? Like, I wondered I wondered if there was some tie into reality with that music or with that that person or whatever. I don't I don't know if that's the case or not, but I was looking for exactly that connection in that and not in the the fact that the guy's name was buddy. It's another clue that there's something that this is uh, surreal because it's the moody blues song nights in white satin. And it, it's a long song, but you know, it's inherently sort of surreal that it's on all of these TVs and there are all these little black and white TVs. And like, there are a lot of clues that this isn't real. And I think that's a, that's a big one. That's one of the dreamlike qualities to everything in the sequence. It helps to sell it, even though it is kind of silly that this entire giant sequence would be just a dream, but it, it, it makes it easier for me when you, when you do stuff like that. Agree, but wait, just as horror fans, like I how do you guys feel about the fact that this whole long, intense, really well done sequence turns out to be a dream? Like I always feel like when I see that in other instances, it feels like kind of a cheat. Big picture, it's a disappointment, but as I think you've already hit, it gets by on the fact that like cinematically it's just like an absolute bullet of a of a scene. Like it is an entire horror movie condensed into a 15 minute sequence and it's all the best parts. 
So I feel like it gets by on the fact that you are so engaged with it. And then when it turns out to be a dream and then you're stuck in this new world of Lori, it's such a disorienting change that you, you kind of forget about it and it, and it moves on. But yeah, I was a little bummed to find out it was a dream sequence. It is a cheap shot, but it's a pretty one. I will say that the fact that the movie is dealing with dreams helps. Um, like that is That's one fair. of the, the main thrusts of the story. And it is shocking and it's just ballsy. Ultimately, it's ballsy to, to do that, that it's all in Lori's mind. But it also, again, helps sell the idea, like when she's going over that giant like bin of corpses, the idea that Halloween 2, as we know it, as fans of this franchise, happened, but we were just getting like the highlights of it. Like he worked his way, he killed everyone in this hospital, um, and I kind of like that sort of implied story that that happened but at the same time i'm okay with that being like kind of implausible and and it actually sort of works that that it was Lori's recreation of her fevered dreams her paranoid uh terrified flashbacky ptsd dreams of her time in the hospital and she refers to it with annie as like the hospital one again like i haven't had that one in a while and the idea that the dreams are ramping up again as she gets closer to Halloween, like all of that, I think just works fabulously. So ultimately, I think I'm totally good with it. You know, I like to pepper my wife Wendy's commentary in here. Um, <laughs> she works in a hospital. And when Lori falls into what seems to be like a trash bin full of 20 something bodies, she goes, do, do they expect us to believe that there's just a bin where hospitals put all the bodies when they're done with them? <laughs> I was like, no, I think Michael killed them. Wait a minute. How many bodies is the hospital turning out? <laughs> oh, God. Like, that's the really disturbing thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, we have that many also... bodies, but we don't do that with them. <laughs> yeah. We do other things with them. Oh, God. Sorry. I just thought of the drivers. All right. Forget it. Can we also do a shout out to future Oscar winner Octavia Spencer? Thank you, Vic. as the, yeah. the nurse there who is named Octavia. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Thank you, thank you, Vic. You know, I'm really glad that you noticed these things because I also was absolutely tickled by the fact that these two actresses were clearly improving. Neither of them were famous or thought they would be famous, and so it felt totally natural for her to call you know, this person she just met by her real name and they let they leave it in the movie, but it be kind of becomes comical when, when it's Octavia Spencer that she yeah. calls that she's playing a character named Octavia and she does a great job. She's, she's fantastic in her little scene here and she dies a very, very bad death. And this Rob zombie version of Michael Myers in both films, I think he savors his, his kills in a way that is very disturbing. It's not just a means to an end with him. He's not like, oh, you're in my way. I'll kill you, you know, get you, put you down and move on. He takes each of them seriously and sort of luxuriates in them. And I, I find that, you know, the, the sort of back to in the first of these two films, the idea of him, I don't know if torturing the animals is is is, is entirely accurate, but we see him savor the human kills. And we just kind of get the idea that there really is a, a sadism in the traditional 
gratification, taking pleasure way. And, and there's a lot of rage here, but it's not just rage. Like it's very disturbing in a way that a lot of real life uh, psychopathic murderers are. Someone brought up the point last time that it felt like the men were dispatched quickly and that the mm -hmm. women were sort of like left to, to suffer and be dragged around. And I do feel like he got past that in this film. Yes. Um, it's a much more equal opportunity uh, killing scenario. And I appreciate that. And just while we're still talking about the uh, Octavia Spencer scene, I really liked the, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I really liked the effect of when she, she disappears into a back room to get something for Lori and she comes back out and Lori asks her a question and she like opens her mouth and there's a, a slit, I guess, that's gone through her face so that when she opens her mouth, like blood starts to spill out and she seems surprised. It was just a really like odd, unsettling effect for the first uh, real kill of the movie. That shot sort of it's like outside of the room that she's in where you can see Michael through it. You see the knife come way back, and it's really it's I think it's the cover image yeah. at least. Stabbings in movies seem like they're they're sort of quick or they're they're very short, and it was like he really rears back with it in a way that I feel like I haven't seen in a movie like this. From a from a physicality, from a performance perspective, it's kind of unsettling, and that's one of those things that you're like, how, it never would have occurred to me to do that if you were coaching a performance to be like, bring that fucking knife way back and then bring it down with all of your might. But as soon as you see it, you're like, oh shit, that's what it really looks like if you're trying to put a knife through somebody's skull. Well, previous Michaels were often more of like a, a creep. You know, they're like these sort of partially emasculated, as we all know, because they don't have any sexual identity. You know, they're not acting on whatever the real desires or motivations are. And they're sort of, you know, skulking around. They're not avoiding confrontation, but there's something weirdly passive about them. But the, the Rob Zombie Michael Myers is this grunting, bellowing berserker. And you see it in moments like that, where he's rearing back in these epic strokes. And he, he's not quite an alpha male, but he's a lot closer to that than kind of a skulking, pervy weirdo, which is how a lot of other Michaels come off. Like, this is, this is a Michael who's a hulking brute who just destroys everything and everyone in his path. And he will stab you with every ounce of power that he has over and over and over and I think that is like really visceral and, and unsettling and just, you know, more physically intimidating. There's a couple instances in this movie where people sort of come up to Michael Myers and just start shit with him without acknowledging that he's fucking huge. The farmers in the truck and then when we get to the strip club and whatever, and it's only the little kid is like, are you a giant? And I just feel like even if you're the tough guy at the strip club, you're like, maybe you're going to give pause to the fact that this guy is clearly like a monster. I would say uh, in this in this film, he is uh, homeless, Michael Myers, like uh, both in his actual life. And I did see a deleted scene where he is picking through trash. And one of the things this movie carries on from the previous movies is that he'll eat a dog. Um, he, he is essentially a homeless, he's a drifter 
And so, yeah, he's very physically intimidating, but you still kind of see this guy and read him as, oh, I, I understand the rules of engagement with a homeless guy, and so does he. You know, like, and maybe that's how these characters are seeing him. So I, I get your point. But you're right. I mean, he is physically like he is a just a wrecking ball in this. And it's and it's again, even more so than the other films. I really appreciate they put an actor in there where you really believe it when he tears down walls or does whatever horrific things he does. He does a lot of that in this movie. Apparently, according to Rob Zombie, because the crew continually would build things that were not destructible. And then the actor Tyler Maine is, is supposed to destroy them. And so I think the actual effect in the film is more cool because you're like, he is really going through an actual wall here versus, you know, those kind of flimsy bullshit plywood things that, uh, you know, some part of your eye recognizes are illegitimate. So it kind of worked out for the better of the film. How did you feel about so you're making a reference to the um that nice set piece at the end of the hospital where Lori is in the security guard station and and Buddy the cop is saying he's going to rescue her and of course he he gets killed first and then Michael tears the the guard station down but as he's doing it we get the first sense that like Michael's going to grunt his way through um some of the hard labor in this movie where he's you're literally here just hearing him go Ugh! as he's chopping stuff down, which uh, isn't something that we've encountered a whole lot elsewhere in the series, right? No, we haven't. I noticed that when he kills Octavia Spencer, there's a, there's some vocalization and I, we got it in the, in the first zombie film. It was something that I think we talked about that he does vocalize a little bit. And it's one of those things that I think of making it more grounded and kind of more human is it's not that he's just completely silent. Like the idea is that he is a person. He is sort of making these noises. And it's weird, I think, just on the on the tail end of the of the franchise, you notice it and it bothers you because he doesn't make a fucking peep for the last, you know, eight movies. All of a sudden he's going, ugh, ugh, ugh. But I wonder in this film specifically. Is he building up to the idea that he's going to speak at the end of this film? I don't uh, know. I'm just perhaps. Saying. Although I, I feel like that opportunity kind of gets blown personally. But I agree with I that. We, actually, I guess we well, can discuss that when we get there. Mm-hmm. Yes, let's let's get there. But I agree. But that was one of the thoughts. If you were looking for a way to justify it, it is we are acknowledging from from the word go that Michael Myers has a voice. But he chooses not to not to use it to speak. He so chooses I, it to sing. <laughs> <laughs> the show tune sequence blew me away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that differentiates this Michael, you know, as 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 Rob Zombie's looking for for ways to say, you know, to put his stamp on it, is that yeah, this is this is a a, a loud Michael, <laughs> you know, whether he's using words or not he's a he's a loud michael that's kind of a frustrating thing for me because i rewatched uh the first one and i i after seeing this and i it definitely had levels and dimensions that i appreciated but the scene when he has laurie back at the their house at the very end and and he brings this photo to her and he's trying to connect with her but he can't say anything like the only way that that serves his goals or his 
uh, intentions is that like he would love to say something, but he can't. He's lost the power of speech, you know, for whatever reason, because it would make that scene so much easier to get where he's going. And it, it's very sad that they don't have this possible moment of connection when he shows them the photo together. He even takes off his mask, like, which is clearly in these two films. Like, when he takes off the mask, he's trying to access his humanity again. But she totally understandably doesn't know they're related. All she knows is he just killed Linda, and she all she can think about is the knife. So there's no hope in any practical way that they could connect and that 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 just bothers me because if there's enough going on in his mind that he can say something to loomis at the end of the movie in in this one and and so on why wouldn't he say something in that situation that's frustrating which we should stress number one that that's in the director's cut that he says something in the theatrical sure. theatrical cut he doesn't speak also i'm gonna fuck it up for everybody I just realized it's like Silent Bob, who is silent through the whole movies and then says one thing at the end of the movie. <laughs> but if you were going to go that route, and this is, I, it's just terrible. But I, what, what occurred to me is if, if when he gives her the picture, if he was going to find a word, if he was going to find a way to speak, he could give her the picture and say "boo." That would be it. That would be the connection. Sure. I mean, if if only that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And maybe that wouldn't get the job done. I mean, because obviously we don't want to end the movie with them making friends not... and going off to, you know, get therapy together. But mm. I like that it's still sort of painful and I'm it pulls my sort of tragic, ironic heartstrings that like maybe a lot of people wouldn't have died if somehow, you know, they could have had a moment together and it, it could have derailed the murder train. But like it it it, it ultimately ended up being kind of dumb and frustrating especially once you see what his real capabilities are agreed hey guys hang on i gotta uh, emily just texted me to go get the cat so hang on one second <laughs> okay i am possibly gonna have to feed the cat treats until she vomits to keep her quiet but <laughs> then you can right. harvest her liver <laughs> <laughs> how did you get through 60 podcasts without having to do that before what make the cat throw up yeah that's never happened before how do you know oh yeah good point i mean the, the last thing i'll say about the the dream sequence here is that in in Lori's mind because i i don't think they're sharing anything i think this is totally her uh memory of events and her projected fears about how it could have gone Michael Myers does not mess around here. He just like, he would dispatch her given the opportunity because that's how it ends is he just, you know, raises this ax and he's about to split her in half. He makes no further attempt to connect. Uh, and you could say, well, she gave up the right to connect uh, when she did not uh, accept his sort of peace offering in the last when movie. She, when she shot him in the, in the head. Well, yeah. I mean that that's yeah. that has a chilling effect on a on a sibling relationship. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean it's like why, it's why it's why my brother and I don't talk anymore. <laughs> but I mean this is prior to she we don't know of any, you know, she's not seeing the white horses yet. This is strictly Lori's perspective and not a, a mutual perspective and and so that's why it ends that way. After that we get to October 29th, which is, as Rich mentioned, 
about, I think, a good, you know, 25% of these movies takes place on October 29th, October 30th, and then, you know, the other half is on October 31st. So no matter who is making these movies or when, you got to throw the date October 29th on the screen. And that's what we do here once we wake her up from this incredibly traumatic and intense dream. And then we also, this is the next sort of order of business for the podcast is we see where she's living and it's a extremely, it's an art director's dream, I guess, uh, to design this bizarre little cave, heavy metal grungy cave of a domicile that she is created for herself in someone else's house. I might add, Uh, She's got bumper stickers declaring punk rock messages that she must find important to revisit on a daily basis for her coping mechanisms. And all of that is in place for her. She repeats her mantra about Michael Myers being dead. It doesn't seem like an unusual occurrence, even though we know her subconscious mind has probably been kicked into high gear by the calendar. The theatrical cut suggests that this is one year later versus the director's cut, which suggests this is two years later. Now, John, we've had many an argument on this podcast over what Michael Myers does between Halloween movies. Yes. Are you, are you more troubled by the director's cut where he's been digging out of garbage cans for two years? Are you, are you satisfied that you know where he's been and what he's been doing? Does it make a difference? It seems sort of strange to me because the one year later just seems like, why would you make it two years? I don't know. I totally agree. It does beg the question, how did he spend Halloween last year? You know, like I can, if you're going to posit that he's wandering around, growing out his beard with his bedroll that he appears to be, he's carrying some kind of bag around, living off the the fat of the land living rough but like why yeah why two years like i there's no mythological or logical otherwise reason to to take a year off from it so i agree I, i i don't understand why it would be two years versus one year i will say not that i'm a psychologist but uh the place that Lori is at seems a little more realistic for two years than one year. Mm-hmm. She feels like she's hit like the recovery phase, but you know, there's still something nagging at her obviously. And she's really like changed everything around her. I actually um, agree with that. And when I first saw it, like that was sort of my feeling. I liked it. It's only now thinking it through with sort of the normal question that we have on this podcast is, which is, you know, what is Michael doing with his time that I rub up against it or bump up against it? But yeah, I agree with you that for Lori, I, I, it makes more sense. John, please don't rub up against it. (laughs) That's what your cat's doing right now. (laughs) For for the listeners, my cat has joined the podcast. So if you, if you get a couple of uh, meows in the background, or or possibly scratching at the litter box. I don't know. It gets they pretty interesting deal. in here. But yeah, deal. apologies. I don't know if this will help answer the question. Uh, does anyone remember what it is that was? Oh my God! What's what's Michael Myers' mom's mom's name? Deborah. Deborah. Thank you. What does she say to him when he encounters her? Because the 
Two years previous was when he escaped from the ambulance. What does she say to him when he sees her that night in the vision? She says, go hike around Illinois for two years. <laughs> Find yourself. Find yourself. Study I abroad. <laughs> I don't remember exactly, but I mean, she spends a lot of her time in, in this movie saying not yet, not yet, not yet. Right. Uh-huh. So, yeah. I mean, I think it has to do with Lori being ready in, in the eyes of you know, dream Judith. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Deborah. Judith does not participate. Uh, so when we, when we realize that Lori is living with the brackets, I think it's a strong moment. It makes sense given that the sheriff had such a key role in, which is easily forgotten in Lori's being adopted by the Strodes and like, he's kind of more or less taken responsibility for her, even if no one knows exactly why. And just to refresh everyone's memory, he answered the 911 call when Deborah committed suicide. And so he took the baby, brought it to a hospital in another town. And then I guess it was coincidental that a friend of his, being Mason Strode, ad- uh, adopted her. But he's, you know, been checking in on her regardless. And then obviously when Michael kills the adopted parents, he would be the logical person to step in and wouldn't you know Annie and his own daughter is is the best friend of of Lori so everyone seems like in a grungier darker place when this movie uh begins versus when we met them in the last movie and i i think that's one of the cool things about like seeing this as two films is that when you look at Lori's life, like she actually, she was the baby screaming when Ronnie is saying horrible things and smashing the kitchen. And like, she actually, for what it's worth, whatever it means to somebody, a a, a baby of that age, she was in this horrible, chaotic environment in the Myers house. However long I'm not good at, at judging the age of babies, but then she goes and spends 15 solid years with a wonderful family. And I think that the, uh, director's cut of the original movie really shows they're not perfect, but uh, her adopted parents are are great, and she's had an idyllic fifteen years away from all of this, and then that that reality is just ripped away from her. That is in- incredibly traumatic to have a very safe, loving, normal life, and it all goes away. It all goes away. And that's one of the things that I really like about this film is that you wouldn't wish this on your worst enemy, like to be Laurie Strode and have all of this. And then at the end of it, it's like, oh, wait, you thought that was bad. By the way, he's your brother, (laughs) the guy who (laughs) killed your parents. (laughs) One of the interesting things I seized on when watching it this time is one of the things she says to her therapist is – I've been thinking a lot about my parents. I miss them. I don't know who I am without them. Mm. And when she says that, you sort of immediately think of the Strodes. But I wonder if the idea of the movie is, is she really about reconnecting with the Myers and with the fact that that's her actual family? Like that seems to be the journey that she's on is reconnecting with them, you know, sort of however, whichever ending you go with, that seems to be the direction of it. 
one of the scenes that I really like is there's a scene with with her and Annie and Sheriff Brackett having pizza, and and Brackett trying to tell them who Lee Lee Marvin is. It felt very natural and very real, and you get the family that you get, but your friends are the family that you choose. And so Annie and Brackett seem like the the family that she's kind of chosen through circumstance and whatever else. But there's something very poignant and sweet about that, that there's this hint of normalcy. Like there is this vague vision of a life that is not haunted by Michael Myers. Because there's so little of that. There's so little of people being pleasant and normal and nice to each other. That scene really leaps out to me as a moment of, okay, everything's okay. Except, of course, it's intercut with Michael Myers eating the fucking dog. But they're uh, which, not. They're not normal. I mean, like, that's the thing is that they've all been scarred by this. And, like, this is such a far cry from her meal scene with the bagel with the strots. Even the sheriff is affected. And God knows Annie is. Like, they're they're living in a dark and twisted version of that familial dynamic. That's true. But I still think there's a there's a vision of healing here. There's a there's mm-hmm. a place where they can coexist Again, it's this is this is three people, uh, you know, who live together in this kind of familial dynamic, eating pizza on a night, and the and especially actually where I really appreciate is the the dynamics between Annie and her father, uh, with his concern for her, and her, I think, pretending to be irritated by it, but really sort of appreciating it. You know, the way that she's mm-hmm. constantly on him to give up meat and you should be more healthy and there's too many calories in that. There's a lot of there's a lot of affection. There's a lot of love in those scenes. And I think you see it even with uh, Lori. I think you see it even with the way that they interact with her. That is I just I, I really think that's one that scene is one of the beacons of hope in an almost otherwise utterly hopeless movie. That scene's garbage, Vic. It sucks. <laughs> Just kidding. You know what? You suck too. <laughs> Worst scene in the movie. No, I agree with you. I, I I agree with you. This is a this is a total detour, or maybe it's not. I don't know. Um, but Vic made me think about it. It's never discussed who the Myers' father is. There's the glancing reference. He says that his his father is dead. And that's all we know is that Michael Myers' dad died somehow. That's John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> that seems like a very deliberate choice mm-hmm. just to never address it because I, I do feel like you had the option there to make it some shocking secret that you uncover or some sort of deep psychological scar that partially made him the way he was. I think but that, the fact that, that Zombie's going with the idea of the absence. Well, which is frankly similar to uh jason Voorhees, something that we mm-hmm. talked about a bit i think i think they try to address that in jason goes to hell to shockingly good effect if i recall correctly um i'm, I'm kidding it was terrible but uh, <laughs> i was like um, shockingly good effect what gotta watch that movie again <laughs> do not I, I cannot stress this enough do not watch Jason Goes to Hell again. You got it all the first time. <laughs> but uh, no, I just a just a, an interesting parallel. Well, I uh, I know that Loomis in this film references the idea that he was the last of many father figures in Michael's life. 
for what that's worth. And I think that one of the things that I don't like about this movie is that Loomis's relationship with Michael actually does kind of get short shrift here. Loomis ultimately has a, a, a desire for redemption and goes back, but we don't really reconnect with any idea of them having a connection. Michael just like very dismissively deals with him. And which is funny because I watched the second, the first one again, and I felt like Michael easily could have killed Loomis uh, and, and probably should have at the end of that movie and almost seems to willfully not kill Loomis. And this movie does not build on that at all. And that's one of the, the weaknesses I would say. Well, Loomis, Loomis was our window into Michael's humanity for much of the movie. Like mm-hmm. I know we talked or much of the series. I know we talked about one of my favorite scenes in uh, Halloween five is Loomis like trying to talk Michael down and Michael, it's okay. You know, she can do it. She can stop the rage. Like it's this idea that he actually has some insight into him. What, what, I really came to grips with on this viewing is that the whole B story with Loomis sucks. Yeah. Like we spend an extraordinary amount of time setting up the fact that Loomis is a douchebag. That's the point. That's the point of this Loomis scene and the next Loomis scene and the next Loomis scene is that Loomis is a douchebag. Before we get to the Loomis scene, we need to have the Margot Kidder scene, right? So, Oh, Which I will also say, and I don't want to monopolize the, the, the conversation, some of the best, most realistic therapy scenes uh, that I have seen in a horror film. That's a big I would, statement. I, I would bet dollars to donuts that Rob Zombie has been in therapy for a variety of reasons, not just because <laughs> these are realistically written. It's a great window into Laurie's psychology that doesn't feel like normally – I when I read a script – like for a contest or something, the worst thing you could do is put in a scene with a fucking shrink. You know, I just feel it's so overused and I, and so like cheap, but I think this movie actually does it, does it well. And we see this cynical, this like completely unrecognizable energy in Laurie that she did not have in the previous film, but that is absolutely understandable given how much she's changed and why this is not the same person we saw in the last movie. She has this dark maniacal energy that shows that like her demons are, are driving her, which I have a lot of sympathy for it. It's pretty powerful and it, it's very metaphorical to any, anyone who's dealing with mental health issues that are getting away from them. And they're hoping they want to get on the right medication and they want it to stop. And their doctor isn't 100% understanding and isn't 100% giving them what they think they need and how unbelievably uh, scary and frustrating that would be. And I think this movie absolutely captures that in a powerful way. Is it clever or cruel to cast Margot Kidder as a psychiatrist. <laughs> I mean, she's completely credible and convincing. Uh, she's it good. I mean, she as a yeah, joke. she gives a good performance. I agree, but, but no, I was struck by like that's that's not by accident. Yeah, um, someone who's had some 
serious issues uh, yeah. in her life. True, um, which I don't want to make light of. Again, no, mental of health. Not. Mental health, very important. If there's anything that you're concerned about in your life, please call a mental health professional. I promise you they're good people. They will help. Uh, Vic's but, wife's phone number. Let's give her the cell number right now. I was struck by, I feel like when I watch horror movies specifically, but movies in general, I just cringe every time a therapist or a psychiatrist or somebody says, and how did that make you feel? Nobody ever fucking says I've been in therapy. Nobody ever says that. And so this was, that's what I mean is that's all of her, all of Margot Kidder's reactions to her were felt authentic to me. It felt like stuff that a therapist might actually say. So how much is all this realism undercut when you pull out to a wide shot and realize that she has a Rorschach print of two white horses on the wall? <laughs> well, the, the, the white horses uh, were a little on the nose, but... I will swear to you guys that I did not... I looked at it, and I did not see the horses until Lori said she saw the horses. Oh, really? I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. Well... I must just really be a guy who likes white horses. I think it's the purity <laughs> of your soul, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> One of the other interesting things about this scene is that, like, in this film, the people who you would expect to say, they never found his body, he's still out there, are, like, in complete denial of that possibility. And it's the other characters. It's the shrink. It's the reporters who say, you know, they never found his body. And the main characters like for psychologically understandable reasons are clinging to their commitment that Michael Myers is dead. And I actually think that that's kind of brilliant and it works really well. I think Lori says things like, I shot him in the head. I know he's not coming back because of a stupid holiday, which I love on multiple levels because it's kind of a meta comment on the plot element we've recycled in so many of these sequels because literally Michael Myers always comes back because of the stupid holiday. And in, in some way this movie is saying we're superior to that. And that's, that's ridiculous. And I appreciate that. However, the shrink makes the argument that, well, he's living on in your mind and your heart and your emotions. That doesn't hold a lot of water considering that we know, having watched the movie, and we saw him literally get up and walk away, but I don't know what else, what other conclusion everyone else has reached. Are, is everyone thinking grave robbers just took his corpse away? Like, I would consider it legitimately disturbing whether I was law enforcement or, or Lori or anyone that like his quote unquote body disappeared. Well, and presumably disappeared from the scene of a horrific car accident where someone's head is missing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and and also a cow was killed, Rich. Don't forget a cow lost its life. A cow lost its life. No, I mean, I think, look, John, it's, it goes back to what you said. There were paramedics at the scene who checked his vitals, who put him on a thing. It took six guys to get him into the into the ambulance. Like, there's a lot of very credible people who will swear that he was dead, including the girl who shot him in the head. So I'm actually okay with all of that. And I really, again, 
that idea, what she was saying about Michael Myers living in your in your in your fears, in your mind, in your imagination, that rings true with me. Like I I imagine that is is probably something a psychologist would say to to a trauma survivor. So okay. fuck you, John, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, uh, I'll I'll seed that one. You know who doesn't believe that Michael Myers is dead is the fucking press. Well, yeah, I mean that is true. Which is which is how we get that was that was my segue, professional into Loomis. the scene with Doctor. Yeah. Flawless. Okay. Um, Flawless. That is why you get paid the big bucks. So yeah, we see that Loomis is um, an even bigger douchebag than two years ago, and I think I wrote that note before I rewatched it because he's actually not a douchebag in the first movie, but now he's like talent with quote-unquote talent with all the entitled attitude that that word can imply when dealing with PR people and the media and assistants and all of that um, as he has this uh, woman who's charged with uh, seeing him through his press tour. And I, I did think that his whole clam digger versus carpet muncher exchange was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, a, a little out of nowhere. But, you know, I'm sorry, really doubling back, like I had one last thing to say about the Rorschach uh, inkblot. Like that was the first clue that there's a bright white line, as they say, connecting Laurie to Michael. And my, you know, feeling watching that uh, for the first slash second time was, wow, that is a big leap to make, but I, I love it. Because it, it's really saying, yeah, we're connecting these two characters on some level. And I think it was a relatively subtle way to, to make that point the first time in the film. John, I'm just curious. What, what did you see in the Rorschach uh, picture? Uh, I saw you, Beck. It was very <laughs> troubling. <laughs> it was very troubling. <laughs> um, so we find out that, uh, that, that, uh, Lori is working at a record store slash bookstore slash coffee shop. I don't know. Uh, no, no, it's, it's a, uh, wait, hold on. I wrote it down. Cause it's pretty good. Yeah. Uncle, uncle meets Java hole. <laughs> <laughs> the most Rob zombie name ever, uh, ever. Yeah. And he's ranting about the military industrial complex and whatnot. And, you know, this, this feels like kind of a gratuitous cameo to WKRP and Cincinnati fans, I guess, but it, it's fine. It's not really distracting. Although, although it's worth noting because I did hear something from zombie that I thought was interesting, which was that the idea of Lewis's character at this point is that when you met him initially, he was sort of like a, you know, seventies era hippie throwback and now he's like gone full circle to becoming the corporate sellout. So I don't know if there's any tie in there with the fact that this is cross cut along with this uh, Howard Hessman scene of the old hippie who's uh, railing against the man. You're right, because he is a tweedy bohemian child psychologist in the first movie. Uh, right. Lumis, you know, and uh, this is a big he's changed a lot. That's really interesting. And I, A, I love Howard Hesman and even like head of the class, like some of the, sure. some of his other stuff. Um, but what, it, what I wouldn't have given to what I would have given to see a scene with him confronting Loomis, 
because there's no, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but Loomis's like call to conscience seems to be getting made fun of by Weird Al, which is, <laughs> yeah, which is that's, that's which pretty... is awesome in its own right. But that would have made a would have made a lot more sense and given this really good actor a good scene to play off of. Like I I, I wish they could have they could have put that into place instead of doing it the way they did it because it doesn't make a lot of sense the way it exists oh, now. I have no problem with the Weird Al sequence. None whatsoever. <laughs> I absolutely no, love that. Sorry, I should be clear. It's a great scene, but the idea that it motivates uh, Dr. Loomis to mm-hmm. suddenly become uh, human and rediscover his uh, roots as a humanitarian again doesn't make a lot of sense, whereas interacting with this guy would have been really awesome because he gives this really interesting, distinctive performance for five seconds and mm-hmm. then disappears and never comes back again. Yeah, I mean, this was definitely one of those forced-in-there Rob Zombie cameo-type things. You're right, it doesn't really play any narrative purpose, but I will say that almost every sequence that we do see Loomis in, it's other characters telling him what a complete piece of shit he's become. So it's all building towards him having the desire to seek redemption in some way. That's true. But again, but I, like I said, I just, you'd think there would be some sort of obvious trigger for it. Like Weird Al and Chris Hardwick. Again, this is a weird sentence to say in this context. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's why Weird I love Al, it. <laughs> but Weird Al and Chris Hardwick don't say anything to him that anybody else hasn't said to him up to this point. I think we've also decided that we're going to have to break this into a two-parter. So let's wrap up our comments uh, for tonight and uh, we'll double back and finish this baby up because there's a lot to talk about here. I think we can all agree on that. So Vic, what are your uh, final thoughts for, for tonight? On the first quarter of Halloween (laughs) 2. This is a really interesting movie. I remember when we started doing Friday the 13th and we started talking about the dream sequence in the first film and the, the, the sort of premonitions and this vague idea that there were these supernatural elements going on that were bringing all these things together and feeling like we were just kind of talking shit and like trying to bring some kind of meaning into this film. And the further along we went into the franchise, the more I went, trust the tale, not the teller. There are some really interesting elements to this movie that demand dissection and demand our attention, especially when it comes to these larger questions of the connection between Michael and Lori. And what is the, you know, what does the, appearance of deborah and young michael mean is it real is it not real those things are are really big questions that have really interesting echo effects as we look back on the rest of the franchise before we arrive to this point so it's a it's a fascinating film it's a flawed film and i think rob zombie was wise to to tell us uh really right up front with the title card how flawed it was going to be <laughs> but there are a lot of really good things something rich something you said about the first film that i think really applies to this and i think we can say even about this early section of it is that you really can't fault the performances in this rob zombie has interesting actors doing interesting things and every one of them is committed to this like it's fucking shakespeare 
that pays off. I, I agree 100% that I think Scout Taylor Compton is brilliant in this, and she she really gives a very committed performance. But everybody, I mean, everybody does. This is a fun watch. It's a fun set. This definitely, this definitely merits a two-parter. Yeah, it's really meaty, and I love that. And that's the way that I'm so glad we're not ending with a whimper. I'm so glad that that this series is only cementing its importance. I mean, on a personal level, I have always been a Jason guy, and I like am now thinking after going on this journey. I think Michael and his movies really are the best. And that's like a huge departure. And I love that this movie is, is taking us out with a bang. So Rich, take us out with a bang. What What are your thoughts? No pressure, man, but say something really pro- witty and profound. Thanks. <laughs> well, I think you're wrong, John. <laughs> that's a good start. Um, I do feel like this series has probably the highest highs, but it also has some very low lows. I think that Friday the 13th is is definitely a much more consistent series with the things that make it good and that Nightmare on Elm Street is the absolute bottom of the barrel. But <laughs> as long as we're talking about Halloween, I do think it's promising that we're uh, going to end this particular podcast at a point where we've really just started to introduce Lori, we've kind of just scratched the surface. And like you said, the whole movie's about her. And I plan on uh, holding down my position that it's a not a fantastical film and looking at it from that point of view and proving you guys wrong. Wow. All right. It's going to be like a debate high school style. Uh, this is going to be fantastic, man. I'll put on my jacket and we'll go to the podium. I I think it's going to be a debate like WWE style. <laughs> well, <laughs> so. uh, I, I'm sure Tyler Maine would win that one, but uh, yeah, let's see. Let's see how it shakes out, fellas. Thanks yeah. so much. And, and thanks for everyone listening. And I hope you're cool with us making this a two-parter. I have a feeling that you will be. And I just want to wish everyone out there, a very happy Halloween. Adios. I just wanna make